This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. We are officially in uncharted territory. Today is officially the hottest day ever recorded in this country. The The world is now hotter than ever before in recorded history. Across Europe, nations are sweltering in the grips of an unprecedented heatwave. Heatwaves are sweeping across Europe. Tonight, helicopters fight flames. Fire rages across Canada, leaving parts of the world choking in smoke. Nearly a quarter of the US population is right now under extreme heat advisories. In response, the alarm continues to be rung. Scientists warning that this year could be the hottest ever recorded. This week, James Hansen, the US scientist who first alerted the world to the greenhouse effect in the 1980s, said, we're all damned fools for not acting on his warnings sooner. A study published last week linked the 2022 European summer, the hottest on record to date, to more than 61,000 deaths. And this summer is already hotter. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about the reality gap between the warnings and action on global heating. It's Friday, the 21st of July. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. Lenore, there's been one story this week that has been incredibly hard to ignore, even though it's not really happening in our hemisphere. What's going on with the heat? Uh, well, we're breaking every wrong kind of record. I think the news every night just feels like this kind of dystopian movie. The world has just had the hottest week ever recorded. The World Meteorological Organisation says the Earth has not experienced anything like this since instrumental measures of air temperatures began. So we are quite literally in uncharted territory. July is probably going to be the hottest month there's ever been. We've already seen 1.2 degrees of global heating. Some of the projections are now saying we could pass 1.5 degrees in a couple of years. And that's the level where we get to those irreversible tipping points. It's, I know, it's like 53 degrees in Death Valley in California. In Xinjiang in China, it was 52 degrees. It's 40 degrees in Tokyo. There's wildfires everywhere. There's floods everywhere. I mean, I guess the picture that is coming is that global heating is here. It's happening right now and it's there on our news every night in, you know, undeniable words and pictures. 
Patrick, we've been warned for 30 years that something like this would happen. The warnings keep coming. <laughs> Is there enough action? No, there's not enough action in a simple word. There is some action. Countries around the world are trying to do things. There are at least international agreements with targets to reduce carbon emissions. We know what the causes of this are. It's well understood. Scientists have been warning about it for a very long time. We have the tools at our disposal to massively reduce our use of fossil fuels. But it's not happening quick enough. And you have warnings from people like James Hansen, the former NASA scientist who testified to Congress in the US in the 1980s about the effect of this um, and warning them to take action then. But governments around the world have consistently failed to take the action that's needed to deal with this crisis that we're experiencing at the moment. And I think I'll make two more points about what we're seeing at the moment. The first is that it's not just the wildfire and the discomfort of these record temperatures around the world. Heat is the biggest killer mm. around the world of people. Heat waves kill more people than floods and, you know... Or um, gunfire. Or, or gunfire mm. or earthquakes combined. Um, this is having real impacts. People are dying because of these heat waves and it's not evenly shared to, to all countries. So the Mediterranean, for example, is estimated to heat up one degree more than the rest of Europe. Australia has experienced a great deal of global heating and is estimated to heat more than the global average as well. So some countries will be worse affected than others. And it's inequitable in terms of who it hits, as in poorer people have less ability to adapt, poorer countries have less ability to adapt. Lenore, the James Hansen warning uh, was quite alarming. He said, we're all damned fools. He's not the first person to issue a warning like this, though, is he? No, I mean, it must be very disheartening to be a, a climate scientist in, you know, towards the end of your career because you would have been saying this for 30 years and, unfortunately, everything you projected 30 years ago is now happening. And I think to what Pat was saying about, you know, not enough is happening. There's, there really is this reality gap between what we know is happening and what we're prepared to do about it. And that gap exists in government policy. It exists in corporate responses. It exists in part of the media. If we're really honest, it exists in our own individual responses as well. I mean, it's like the response is on time delay when there's actually no room for time delay. You know, if your house was on fire, you wouldn't go, oh, look, I'll think about calling the fire brigade. But, you know, fire brigades are really expensive. Buckets have worked really great for the last, you know, 50 years. You do it. But our responses to global heating are still kind of hedged. We're starting to do things, but we know we're not doing enough, even though we know and can see on the news every night that what we're doing is not enough. It's this kind of widespread global cognitive dissonance. Mm. Patrick, and we thought at the last election we were t turning a corner, that we were entering a new phase where we would face up to the realities of the climate crisis. Look, I think we have in many ways faced up to the scope of the challenge that we're facing. And at least we have a government now that acknowledges the scale of the crisis that we're facing. There are some ways that they're taking action and we're not in the situation where we were in the, before the 2019 election where journalists were saying, how much is this going to cost? Um, show us the modelling. You know, questions where it's only on one side, where you look at the costs of acting on climate change rather than these enormous costs that we're seeing at the moment around the world of what the impact will be if we don't act. So I think the debate has moved on a long way, but I think what 
we're seeing now is that the scale of our response needs to be dramatically increased and it needs to be deployed much more rapidly than what we're currently seeing. Patrick, a lot of companies now are claiming that they have, you know, really ambitious climate goals. Is this a good thing? Uh, It's a good thing if they really are. Um, net zero. Uh, but what we're seeing is that um, some companies that are claiming to be net zero are really only claiming as part of their business. So there's been some submissions to this Senate inquiry into greenwashing. One, for example, about Woodside, the oil and gas company, the Australian oil and gas company, which has a net zero strategy. But only its emissions reductions targets under its scope one and two emissions are actually counted. So the scope one and two emissions are actually the emissions that are generated in extracting the oil and gas from the ground or the seabed. They don't count the scope three emissions, which are the emissions from uh, whatever is end up being burnt in vehicles. Like the main game. The main game, exactly, (laughs) which is the the vast majority of their emissions. So you really have to question how meaningful a net zero goal is if it doesn't count your overall emissions. Similarly, Ampol, another Australian company which is in the petroleum industry, has a similar net zero target. But again, it only really covers its scope one and two emissions, not those that are petrol actually being burnt in vehicles. So you've got to question how meaningful some of these targets are from some companies. Also, it's not just um, companies like Ampol and Woodside. You've also got major projects that are going to start claiming that they're going to be carbon neutral. So you're looking at things like offshore oil and gas projects. They'll start claiming they're net zero when, of course, there's no way in reality that they can be by definition. (laughs) Even if you capture all those scope one and two emissions and somehow through CCS, which is not working in any scale anywhere, in any meaningful way, you'll be net zero. And the UN high-level expert group on net zero commitments has called out this kind of net zero greenwashing. And it basically says straight out, no one can consider themselves net zero if they build or invest in new oil and gas or if they're involved in deforestation. And it's also been really clear that companies can't use like cheap, dodgy carbon credits or carbon offsets to reach net zero if they haven't done everything they possibly can to bring down their own emissions first. Like the first priority must be actually doing things to reduce your emissions. And then when you get to the end of that road, you might be able to claim offsets to go the last mile towards net zero. So you can't just keep burning fossil fuel and then plant a few trees. That isn't how it works. And look, some companies are really dependent on these offsets to claim their, you know, emissions reductions or net zero status. So you look at Qantas, for example, the company has set a net zero emissions target by 2050, but for many years it's been relying heavily on carbon neutral offsetting services. Most of those are overseas and Really, even the the small wins that they could achieve, like, you know, using 100% renewable electricity on the ground, they haven't yet achieved. Which kind of goes to all of us who fly in their planes as well. But, you know, we did that big story in The Guardian earlier this year, an investigation by the global environment team that found that more than 90% of the rainforest credits issued through one of the biggest global verification organisations, VERA, were likely to be worthless and could actually make global heating worse. Lenore, there was an interesting report out from the ACCC last Friday about greenwashing. What is that and what what did the report say? 
So greenwashing is when um, is when companies make claims about what they're doing to reduce their greenhouse emissions in excess of what they can actually prove, when they kind of gild the lily or say things that aren't actually true. And this is sort of the cognitive dissonance in the corporate world. I mean, most companies are doing some things, want to look like they're doing things, but then push the envelope in terms of what they claim they're doing in comparison to what they're actually doing. And so what the ACCC said, they put out draft guidelines saying companies should have evidence to back up the claims they make about their environmental sustainability and they shouldn't omit or hide important information that would enable consumers to get a full picture of their practices. I mean, this doesn't sound groundbreaking. <laughs> it doesn't sound astonishing, but apparently in the world of marketing, this all needs to be said. And there's those guidelines. It came after there was a survey of a couple of hundred businesses, which found that 57% had promoted concerning claims about their environmental credentials. And the regulators more broadly are taking a really dim view of this. They're starting to really crack down on this. But sometimes it gets actually really complicated. So there's this government program called Climate Active, which was launched with really good intentions to try to sort of give companies a tick of approval for stuff that they were doing in this space. But again, it's come under fire because it's giving companies the ability to say that they're carbon neutral when they're actually carbon neutral in slightly dodgy ways, like claiming offsetting credits in places and under schemes that aren't really Credible. So, as Pat said, there's this um, Senate inquiry looking into greenwashing, and our environment reporter Graham Redfern is reporting this week that the former um, ACCC head Alan Fells has written a submission where he questions whether Climate Active is really compliant with consumer laws at all, because it allows companies to make what appear to be completely overblown claims about their environmental credibility. So is this part of the political dissonance, Patrick? I think it is. Australia's got some moderately ambitious targets to reduce emissions. We've got a 43% target by 2030. But even with those, some modelling by Grattan Institute finds that the government's not even going to meet those moderately ambitious targets. Grattan says that they'll fall short um, of the 2030 target by something like 216 megatons of CO2 equivalent. So... We're a long way from even the small amounts that we've, of emissions reductions that we've committed to to meeting them. Also, we're still approving new thermal coal mines, new gas wells, which, you know, if they go ahead, they won't count to our national target because all of these will be burnt overseas mostly. But if we're talking about getting real about the climate crisis, mm. they all count. Mm. And the IEA and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said you can have no new coal and gas projects if you want to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees. But on we go. So they're saying they're acting on climate change. They have a net zero by 2050 goal. But are they participating in greenwashing if they're still approving fossil fuels? I think greenwashing is probably a strong way to, to say that, but you could make the argument that they are engaging in, in greenwashing Well, there's here. certainly a gap there. There is a gap. There's a significant gap. I think that would be the way between the reality of what's what they're talking about and the targets that they've set and the approval of new coal mines, new gas wells, and also the speed of emissions reductions through domestic policies like household electrification, you know, increasing fuel efficiency standards for vehicles. There's a whole lot of policies which could be dramatically accelerated if the political will and the money was delivered to do it. 
Lenore, you mentioned earlier the media's role in this reality gap. (laughs) What's happening in Australia? Well, um, you know, parts of the Australian media are still in outright climate denial, right? I mean, extraordinarily, that sadly is true. I think there was a UK think tank that found that Sky News Australia was a global hub for climate denial. And this week, this week, Piers Ackerman in News Corp papers said, there has yet to be any scientifically proven link demonstrating that atmospheric CO2 is a driver of global warming. I mean, I'm not quite sure what evidence he wants to see. Anywho, that's what he wrote. But even at news organisations where we can read the science and we can look out the window, it's hard to find ways to report on that reality gap that really that really make a difference. You know, it's, an, it's a disaster playing out in horrible increments. And I think we really need to think about how we pull it together and report it in its whole horrible whole. You know, as Pat said, heatwave deaths, for example, I mean, heat's invisible, but we have to report on them, how many there are, how they skew towards people who are less well off and who can't afford cooling. When we talk about 1.5 degree warming or two degree warming, I think we have to say, what will that mean? Because, you know, just the numbers might not sound like very much to some people. I think we have to find a way to bridge the reality gap and to break the kind of cognitive dissonance that's in society. And I think, you know, that is harder in a media environment like Australia, where there is a good section of the media, not all of it. There's a lot of really good reporters across mastheads in this area, but there is a section of the media which is either still in climate denial or just writing it as a he said, she said story. And, you know, that that kind of skews the landscape. It pushes debate in one direction. And I think we've always tried to stand up for it, call it global heating, call it a climate disaster, call it for what it is. But we have to, you know, we just have to find new ways to keep doing it. Patrick, I really enjoyed reading the column in The Guardian by Michael Mann and Susan Joy Hassel on Thursday that said we cannot afford to give in to despair. How important is hope in how we talk about the climate crisis? I think hope is tremendously important and it's really powerful as well in a way of speaking about the climate crisis. Uh, it, it can be hard, especially as someone who works in the news, to, to read it every day and to listen to it. And it feels overwhelming at times, but we I don't think we can afford to give in to despair at this point. So I uh, I really love it when we can tell hopeful stories about innovations that have been made to reduce emissions, new technology. There are a lot of reasons for hope out there and and we try to find them where we can, but it's not easy. Are you hopeful, Lenore? I'm hopeful. I'm also angry. I also feel really goddamn angry. And I think there's a lot of people who have been involved in this area for a long time who are increasingly angry. Christiana Figueres, who was the Costa Rican diplomat who um, was the chair of the Paris Agreement in 2015, wrote, and she spent a lot of time trying to kind of get fossil fuel companies to change. And she just wrote this article in Al Jazeera this month where she said, there's no point. She's really angry about it. She thought they could change. She was wrong. And, you know, she said, we have to fight against them. You know, they got all these massive profits because of the Ukraine war. And I thought they might use that to help transition their businesses, but they didn't. And similarly, Al Gore now argues that solving the climate crisis requires battling those companies, including barring them from international climate negotiations, not collaborating with them. I think we're at the point where 
if people aren't bridging that gap with goodwill, you call it out. And I think, yep, we should be hopeful and hang on to hope, but I think we have every right to be pretty goddamn mad. Next, onions and solidarity. There's a lot of noise around the Indigenous voice to Parliament. The voice. The voice. The voice. An Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The voice. The voice. The voice. With Australians going to the polls before the end of the year, the Prime Minister says it's up to you to decide. The success of this referendum will depend on millions of conversations, reassuring Australians of all backgrounds and all faiths and beliefs. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and I'm here to tell you about The Voice AMA, a special podcast series we're making here at Guardian Australia, where you ask the questions about The Voice, and we give you the answers. Each fortnight, I'll be joined by a panel of elders, journalists, constitutional experts, activists, academics, and more to answer your questions and cut through the noise. Look out for The Voice AMA in your full story podcast feed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what is it for you this week? After all of that, I had to go for something a little bit lighthearted. <laughs> Thank um, you. So I was really looking forward to this story that the Lifestyle Desk pitched about tearless onions. I was hoping, really hoping, that they would be terrific. And as a piece of writing, I think our Lifestyle editor, Yvonne Lamb, did a marvellous job. She took these onions first to an Indian restaurant and then tried them herself at home. But alas, while they were tearless, they were also a bit tasteless. I think one of the people at the restaurant said, I'm crying because they taste so bad. (laughs) And her husband said, they are the diluted cordial of the onion world. So that was a bit of a disappointment. And now there's a bag of them sitting in our kitchen and no one's taking them home. (laughs) I've I've watched the quotes from the chef (laughs) and the owner and yeah, I am not not eager to take them home. It's also Five dollars for three onions that don't taste like that, onions. That don't that taste more like apple. <laughs> uh, maybe that's a better one for Tony Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Patrick, what can't you get out of your head? Well, I've been fascinated watching the writers and actors strike unfold in Hollywood in the US. Um, My first introduction to this, I think, was when my daughter's favourite TV show disappeared from Netflix and 
I had to go and investigate why. And there's this interesting thing going on there where big production companies like Disney and Netflix are wanting to stop paying essentially royalties to actors um, whose shows are on their platforms. They want to kind of throw up the card table and reinvent the entire business model because the old one where a film went to the, first of all, the the movie theatres, then onto DVD and then perhaps shown on TV for a while, every stage of that the actors used to get a cut from it and the new digital platforms like Netflix and Disney are finding that 15 bucks a month uh, for your subscription doesn't really cover the cost of all of that. So they're grappling with these new business models. There's a lot of actors who are really pushing back about this. Um, one of the most um, uh, prominent and spectacular was Fran Drescher, the mm, formerly known nanny as the nan- nanny, ma- <laughs> nanny named Fran. Um, so she gave a very impassioned speech where she attacked the um, Disney CEO who earns basically about 400 times the average salary of a, a general actor. And you got to remember these people aren't paid like a lot of money. Mm. They're, they're generally like, they're not your Brad Pitts or Jennifer Aniston's there. They're sort of people who earn $20,000 a year or so on on doing a few bit parts here and there. But they're fighting against the studios and we'll see how it all pans out. What I can't get out of my head is Full Story's episode on Thursday this week, which is the first in a series. It's called Voice AMA. Laura Murphy-Oates spoke to our Indigenous Affairs editor, Lorena Allam, as well as Kerry O'Brien and another Indigenous woman called Tale Ailu. It's a fascinating episode where we answered readers' questions. So you can submit your questions, any question, no question is too stupid, to voicequestions at theguardian.com. And we will try to answer them in the next fortnight. But I do really encourage everyone to listen. It's a really great listen, isn't it, Lenore? It's great. It's great. It's sort of bringing some sanity and calm and factual information into that debate. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gab. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. You can find a link to The Voice podcast in our show notes, as well as all the usual links we make to what we can't get out of our head and the best reporting on the topics we've discussed this week. This podcast was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. Joe Koning wrote the theme tune. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.